Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host. Today, a novel about restitution and revenge. So here's the premise of Boris Fishman's debut novel. Slava, a 20-something aspiring writer, is trying to claw his way out of the post-Soviet Brooklyn neighborhood he grew up in. Meanwhile, his grandfather is dead set on pulling him back in. Specifically, he wants to enlist Slava in a writing project, wherein Slava will invent life stories for Soviet emigres that'll get them money from the claims conference for Holocaust survivors. And he wants him to do this despite the fact that, technically speaking, these emigres are not actually survivors. Sounds preposterous. Well, Slava's grandfather is preposterous, and he's hilarious. But beneath all the comedy are serious questions about truth and fiction, about suffering, and about the twisted journey of first-generation immigrants who try to shed their old-world skins and make themselves American. The novel is called A Replacement Life, and we're delighted to have Boris Fishman speaking with us today about it. Boris, welcome to Vox Tablet. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So on the face of it, I don't think a lot of us would think of the grim and bureaucratic process of applying for restitution from the Germans to be the perfect starting point of a novel. How did you come up with this idea? Well, for me, it started in the 1990s. Uh, My grandmother, my real-life grandmother, I feel obligated to point out, um, was a survivor. But um, those who lived behind the Iron Curtain, as we did until 1988, were not eligible to apply for restitution because it was felt by the people who arrived at those agreements that the money would be poached by their government, which was, I think, a reasonable concern. And so she didn't become eligible until we got here. Um, We had been in the country for only several years. So even though I was all of 15, I had the best English in the family. um, And the paperwork was handed to me. And so I filled it out for her. Um, and what struck me, two things struck me about the forms. The first was that they really asked for very little documentation for obvious reasons. Uh, you weren't given a confirmation voucher when you went into the Minsk ghetto as she did. Um, so it kind of came down to how good a story you could tell. This matter of the historical record became a matter of storytelling, which for an aspiring young writer was really enticing. The second thing that I thought of was uh, a less handsome thought, let's say, which was it's just a matter of time before someone has a field day with these applications precisely because it comes down to can you tell a good story? And the community that I come from is full of pretty good storytellers. And in fact, I got a very doleful confirmation um, uh, of, of, of this uh, a year after I started writing. Now, if we fast forward to 2009 when I started writing the novel, A year after, there was a big item in the news. A whole bunch of people were arrested in South Brooklyn, Russian Jews all, for doing exactly this, pretty much as I imagined it. Making up stories. Exactly. Before we get into the novel, tell us just a moment about uh, the community in Brooklyn that you come from. When did you arrive and what was it like? Well, one thing, I I wanted to gently correct something you said in the introduction, which is that these people very much do see themselves as survivors. Um, They're not survivors in the way that the the Conference on Material Claims Against Germany, which is the organization that mediates some of these uh, restitution payouts, they're not survivors in the way that the conference has designated survivorship to mean. Um, but they very much see themselves as having uh, survived World War II, as having survived a very unkind existence 
as Jews in the Soviet Union, which is to say second-class citizens. And you know what? Immigrating to America wasn't that easy either. And so they feel like they're owed restitution by someone for a very hard, unfair life. And if no one's offering, they're not going to go stealing it. But if someone's offering, and it's only a matter of not fitting the exact designations well. And so there's a lot of trauma and a lot of victimhood inside those people. And those are the people that I grew up among. Let's turn to the novel for a moment. Tell us a little bit about Slava Gelman. He seems to actually bear a close resemblance to you. But what are the particulars of his life? Um, as uh, the novelist Arthur Phillips, who uh, is a friend of mine and a very good novelist, has said, none of it happened, but it's all true. Um, which is to say, the things that Slava goes through in the novel, uh, emotionally and spiritually, are very much uh, emblematic of the questions that I had as a hyphenated, bifurcated 20-something uh, 10 years ago. But none of what happens to him actually happened to me. But at its most basic... Slava was reared in this uh, overly close, um, overly traumatized Russian Jewish community in South Brooklyn. And like anyone who overreacts in a desire to correct bad beginnings, decides that the only way to get it out of a system is to physically take himself out of it. Of course, we take our brain with us wherever we go. But Slava's too young to understand that. Um, and so he decides that he needs to – his grandmother is sick with a slow-moving terminal illness. And there's a line in the novel about the machines um, dialyzing her kidneys. And so Slava feels like he needs to dialyze Soviet Brooklyn out of himself and get himself to Manhattan. And so he cuts off ties. And this is a significant thing in a Russian Jewish family where all of you talk ten times a day about – everything and nothing, and decamps to Manhattan and just sort of sits there waiting for the Americanness to take hold, which of course fails to happen. And his main engine for this is this magazine, uh, this New Yorker-like magazine called Century, where he works, um, that he thinks is going to complete the Americanization process for him. The only problem is that nobody there is particularly interested in what he has to contribute to it. He wants to be a writer, but he's just a lowly researcher for the humor column. And... Um, it is at that point that his grandmother passes away, filling him with a tremendous amount of regret because he missed the last month, months of her life. And this is why he becomes particularly susceptible to his grandfather's scheme to lure him back and give something back to the community. Let's talk about the grandfather. Slava's grandfather is Yevgeny Gelman, and he is an incorrigible shyster in Minsk, where he comes from. He was a barber in the Central Train Station, and he traded in sort of hard-to-get goods. And then in Brooklyn, he puts these skills to use as a pensioner, but he's complex and he has virtues. I wanted to draw a complex character uh, for the simple reason that most people are complex and certainly any good character is. And the problem with Evgeny Gelman is that he is incredibly generous, incredibly loving, doesn't hold grudges, um, incredibly resourceful. Um, there's a line in the novel um, in one of the chapters, Slava imagines – Slava never got enough stories from his grandmother. It's part of the reason he decides to go back and forge these claims because it's an opportunity to recreate on the page a grandmother he never knew in real life. And sort of inhabiting his grandmother, he says as her, um, Yevgeny Gelman <clears throat> was one of those men who knew how to find safety when the world was ending around you. And 
That is a classically male quality that is especially prized in a sort of traditional conservative patriarchal community like the Soviet Jewish one. At the same time, the man is a liar, the man is a petty criminal, um, and he's incredibly vain. And he's a wonderful, engaging character to laugh at and enjoy if he's in a movie or in a book. But what if he was your grandfather? You have to build a, build a, a different kind of bridge um, if that's your birthright. And also you have to investigate your own spirit, soul, and bloodline for how much of that is inside you. And that is what Slava has to grapple with in the course of the novel. And these forgeries are the prism, the crucible where that happens. They do have a very uh, complicated relationship. They are often at each other's throats, but they also are very attached to one another, Slava and Yevgeny. I wonder if you'd read a scene for us between them. First set it up for us, and then you can sort of launch into the reading. Yeah, there's a paragraph in the novel that I really love, uh, about Slava's perception of his relationship to grandfather, which is he describes it as a marriage, a marriage in the old-fashioned sense, in the sense that it's it's deathless. Um, You're gripped to each other (laughs) for better and worse, and you want to let go and can't, and you don't want to let go and do. Um, And and they are a bizarre kind of lovers um, in in, in the most platonic sense. Um, And to me, that epitomizes what it means to be in a family. (laughs) Um, in any case, the scene I'm going to read is from a different part of the novel. Grandmother has died. Uh, this is at the funeral dinner in grandfather's house in South Brooklyn. Grandfather uh, calls Slava over because he says, uh, something I need to show you. Uh, and he shows him the paperwork that has come from the uh, claims conference, inviting Slava's grandmother to apply for restitution because she's registered as a survivor at Yad Vashem. And Slava remarks on the bitter irony of this woman's having passed away just as she was authorized to apply. And grandfather says, why not write about me instead? And the only thing you have to know about this scene is that earlier in the day, grandfather um, had to purchase a a burial plot for grandmother. But if you buy two in one go, there's a discount. And so um, he bought one um, for himself. (laughs) And it's going to remain blank while the grandmother's is filled in. And there's a brief reference to that in what I'm going to read. Grandfather turned to Slava. I need to remind you that your great uncle Aaron, my brother, is in a mass grave in Latvia. Unkissed he died. I wish you could read his letters they weren't in Yiddish. I went after him with a butcher knife when they called him up. A pinky would have been enough to disqualify him, in 41 at least. My ear? Every boy conscripted in 43, he sliced his palm through the air, cut down like grass. He leaned in and whispered, I wasn't going to volunteer to be cannon fodder. You wouldn't be here. I stayed alive. What does Aaron have to do with it, Slava said. Look, it says, ghettos, forced labor, concentration camps. What did the subject suffer between 1939 to 1945? The subject, not you. You didn't suffer. I didn't suffer? Grandfather's eyes sparkled. I've got a grave already, I didn't suffer. God bless you, you know that? He snorted as if he'd been asked to sell a perfectly healthy horse at half value. All the men were taken right away. Aaron, father, all the cousins. Father was too old for infantry, so they took him to heavy labor. Two years later, there's a knock at the door. I see the skeleton in rags, so I shout to my mother. There's a beggar at the door, give him some food. Not a strange sight in those days. It was father. A week later, they told us about Aaron, 
killed by artillery. I wanted to spare my mother losing the last of her men, so yes, I went to Uzbekistan. Not to live in a palace, to pick pockets and piss myself on the street so they'd think I was a retard and not draft me. He looked away. Look, I came back. I enlisted. On a ship in liberated territory, Slava said. Look, I didn't make up the rules. The paper says, ghettos, forced labor, concentration camps. What are you, Lenin's grandson, grandfather said? Maybe I didn't suffer in the exact way I need to have suffered. He flicked a finger at the envelope. But they made sure to kill all the people who did. The argument that they're having, which is very uh, poignant, and I have to say I feel very uh, a lot of sympathy for the grandfather. I see his case very strongly. But this argument raises lots of questions that recur throughout the novel. One has to do with conflicting ideas of what constitutes truth, and in some ways those conflicting notions are marked as distinctly Russian versus distinctly American. Can you lay out those two different positions for us? Well, the best way to summarize it is um, someone that I dated once. Um, it was really striking to me that when she was talking to her friends, um, she was never overly specific about sort of her plans, what she was up to that day, anything at all. Uh, she did not feel compelled to spill the full contents of her soul to even some of her closest friends on a daily basis. At the same time, it was immediately obvious to me that here was someone who would never dream of cheating on her tax returns. Whereas for me, you simply have to flip that. I would never uh, dare to speak to any of my friends without giving them the full contents and the full truth of everything going on inside my head at all times. Uh, there was no artful dodging in those relationships. At the same time, even though I do not cheat on my tax returns, primarily <laughs> thanks to my accountant, uh, who's, an, who's an upstanding American citizen, um, that would trouble me far less because it's against a faceless uh, state system. And I did spend nine years in the Soviet Union and then another 25 growing up in a family uh, of Soviet descent. And so obviously, if we're going to generalize, we're going to be reductive. There's plenty of truth bending that goes on in the American public sphere. And there's plenty of uprightness in the former Soviet experience. That said, if we are allowed to generalize briefly, um, I do see... America as simply uh, a more law-abiding place. And it's easy to understand why. Um, the system is much fairer here. Uh, the system is much more generous. Part of the reason it's so tragic that some of these Soviet people cannot shed these terrible habits that were formed over decades of life in the Soviet Union is that this misbehavior was almost honorable in the Soviet Union. But it's shameful here because America is far more generous and trusting of its citizens. I want to ask you about something else. Recently, you sat on and moderated a panel on the work of Bernard Malmud. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there. But I'm told that you had some really interesting things to say about Malmud's work uh, as an inspiration for you. How so? Can you share that with our listeners a bit? Um, I don't think it's very productive to group him with Roth and Bellow the way that he's usually grouped. But let, let, let us discuss them together in this context. For me, Roth and Bellow uh, are profoundly American. Um, there's an exuberance there, uh, an optimism, uh, a real sense of play that feels profoundly American, whereas Malamud feels melancholy in a singularly old world way. 
um, Philip Rav, uh, a great literary critic, I once read an introduction he wrote to a Malamud reader where he said uh, – where he diagnosed something about Malamud that I connect to greatly. It is Malamud's view that, the, that life is essentially full of suffering and um, <clears throat> our mission <laughs> is to handle it as best as we can. But no matter what we do, there's more coming our way. And this is actually what distinguishes him from Dostoevsky who sees purifying qualities in suffering. Whereas Malamud does not. There's nothing great about suffering, but life is full of it. And that is kind of the way – that has been my experience of life as well. There are just a lot of challenges coming your way and the best that you can do is handle it as well as you can. The other thing is Malamud – there's not a single extra word in Malamud. Um, his stories and his novels, they're like rocks. Rocks don't really have any extra skin and neither do his novels. I think they attain the feeling of myth and parable for some readers for this reason. Everything seems so re so beautifully reduced, like a glaze in a pan, so reduced to the essential, so essentialized that it comes to feel like an, a universal allegory, which of course matches with his view uh, at the end of The Assistant that all men are Jews. Some just don't know it yet. <laughs> um, he was the great myth maker. The last thing that I'll say is the just the gorgeously mangled syntax of his writing. Uh, somebody said at the event, you feel like you're reading a novel in translation, but it's actually in English because he recreates what the old Eastern European immigrants who spoke a very Yiddish inflected English, what they sounded like in English. And I try to do the same thing in my book. I just ripped him off. As I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of young Jewish Russian or Soviet Jewish or Soviet American writers publishing right now. I mean, of course, Gary Steingart, Lara Vapnir, Ksenia Melnik, Anya Ulenich, David Bezmoljes. How do you understand this kind of uh, blossoming of so much uh, creative work from this one population? Well, <clears throat> it's because we've had two experiences that are incredibly fertile for stories. Those experiences being a life in a, a an incomparably different environment that refuses to get out of the headlines and Americans remain very engaged with for that reason. Russia is newsworthy. In some perverse sense, we have, we have to thank Putin for uh, running a really messed up place that won't get out of the news. And the second was immigration, which of course is very uh, story uh, producing. Um, what I'm really curious about is second novels. What do you mean? There is enough trauma and uh, enough story-worthy events to make a first novel relatively easy. But that's been mined. And uh, I'm saying now about me, I've mined that. To return to it again um, in a second novel, to me, feels a bit easy. And so I'm always, uh, both in this cohort and um, in, in the on the wider literary scene, I'm much more interested in what happens in a second novel. I've actually just finished writing my second novel. Um, it's called Don't Let My Baby Do Rodeo. And it's about a couple in New Jersey that adopts a boy from Montana who turns out to be feral, wild. Now, the, the family is technically Russian-American. They are technically Jewish. But both of those things play almost no role in the significant events of the novel. It's written from a woman's perspective, um, she's 10 years older. She's an, ado an adoptive mother. Um, I don't need to clarify, not experiences I've had. Um, but I wanted to set myself that set of challenges, not for academic reasons, but because I very much didn't want to lean on a crutch. And I find that um, – I imagine that um, uh, local color can become a crutch. 
Um, but to go back to your original question is just the reason there's this glorious outpouring of Russian Jewish writers and novels is because the things that happen to us beg to be told. Boris Fishman, thank you so much for joining us. I was honored to be here. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Boris Fishman's debut novel is called A Replacement Life. The book is just out from Harper and go get yourself a copy. Gang, we are banging out these podcasts. Each one's a gem. Go to iTunes if you haven't yet. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't ever miss a single episode. While you're there, it's so easy to write a review of Vox Tablet, so please do so. It will earn you our deepest gratitude. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for listening. 